be calm. Gang, be calm. Why should you be calm? <laughs> I am here. I am here. <laughs> Tonight, before we get uh, involved in the trivia of existence and life, would uh, you please uh, set up my, uh, my uh, would you please, Marty, my salute? Uh, we here, as part of our vast public service programming, salute people who have done outstanding public services of our time. <laughs> and uh, would we uh, all set in there? Wait a minute here, i got to check here. i got to get this, some, it has to be absolutely true. Uh, Marty, I cannot uh, do anything that is not true. <laughs> Not at all. It's, it's got to be all right. No, you don't want to hear about the ostrich that swallowed the $800 watch in France, do you? No. Didn't think so. I tell you, it's good. it's it's spreading all over. I mean, it's just nothing but the rip off every place you go. I tell you, ostrich steals $700 watch, swallows it. You want to hear the rest of that? The reporter who asked the uh, guy who owns the ostrich, said that, look, if he doesn't get rid of it by uh, natural means, you'll just have to wait till the ostrich dies, and then you'll get your watch back. By the way, the lifespan of ostriches is sometimes as high as 300 years. So, eins, zwei, drei. You are now listening to the Hammond High Fight Song, which has spurred many a football team on to total disaster. Yeah. We now salute an unknown citizen of Flint, Michigan, of all places. A Flint man reported to police that he found a stray bird among his homing pigeons last Monday and discovered that it had a package and a note attached to one leg. The note read, and we quote, Please enjoy. Police said that the <laughs> the contents of the package was a very high grade, a high quality marijuana. Nice. You like that? God, you just, there's no substitute for talent. Hello, thank you. No substitute for talent at all. Just no way. Hey, uh, uh we got a very difficult thing here to deal with tonight. Uh, don't quite know how to deal with it. It uh, involves, uh, involves a lot of difficult problems here that uh, we don't want to bring right out into the open. Uh, first of all, not a, you, you've probably noticed a lot of your fellow citizens are laying off. And there's a lot of goofing off. You notice this? You notice how many people goofing off? I mean, not you, of course. No, no. I mean, uh, all present company accepted, naturally. 
Uh, no, not at all. After all, you weren't. <laughs> what you do, you know, laying around there under the day bed, up there in the lounge. You've earned that because of the fantastic amount of work you do. Hey, I don't know what the Times is trying to say to me, but uh, there's a little quote, a little squib at the bottom of one of the columns in the Times. It says automatic washer sales equal those of ringer washers for the first time in 1953. Now, um, I repeat, uh, I'm reading it exactly truly correct. Automatic washer sales equal those of ringer washers for the first time in 1953. Well, I read that, see, and I thought about that. I was sitting in the H&H there. I was trying to, you know, just trying to contemplate my navel for a while. I'll tell you that when you, when you, uh, you need a place to contemplate once in a while. You do. I, I, uh, given up on the John. That used to be great, but, uh, this place where I go now, they install the transistor radio in the uh, little roller, you know, that operates with the paper and all that, and you, every time you go in there, it turns on. And, uh, you know, it's after a while. You, and they always have a tune to this all-news station. And that's uh, kind of disturbing. You know, these guys keep going on and on about explosion strikes, floods, famine, plagues of locusts. And uh, not that I don't mind locusts. I'll tell you, I... I uh, no, I'm, I'm one of the few guys probably in this area who's ever actually seen a real locust. And uh, I was, you know, I was really present at the time a plague descended. I really was. You've seen them in movies, haven't you? Well, it's a hell of a lot more exciting when it's live, I'll tell you that. I mean, movies only get to the start of it. I ate my socks right off. It was just exciting. Uh, you see, the thing about locusts is that they don't stop at nothing. To quote Big Ben Davidson who was, uh, as you know, a famous, uh, what is it, uh, you saw one 17 years ago? That means it's almost due again. If it was 17 years ago, Marty, be careful. But to quote big Ben Davidson, who, as you know, is a famous writer of one-act plays, uh, Ben Davidson says, I don't stop at nothing. And that's quite true. I, I uh, Of course, I'm not so sure. That's a metaphysical remark, and I, I don't like to argue with people's metaphysics at this time. Well, it's a little early in the evening, and you haven't given that last stuff you took time to work yet, so we're not going to deal with metaphysics yet at this point. However, later on, oh, that was a sneaky one. Tastes like really fine Swiss chocolate, and uh, don't be taken in by that. I, I once uh, know a kid that ate an entire, well, in fact, a box and a half of that stuff because it tasted like a fine Swiss chocolate, and it was more action. I want to tell you... It's fantastic. The kid only weighed about 26 pounds, soaking wet. But uh, we don't want to go into that. That's a sickening thing at this hour. I have a lot of people still winding up and winding down from the day. I, I would like to report, however, that there's a growing, a growing belief that not only man is goofing off, but uh, it's, it's spreading. It's just a spreading thing. It's everywhere you go. No, I'm serious. For example, we have a note from Warrington, England. Now, I... I'm uh, I'm a guy, you know, I, I take England, or I can leave it alone. I just like anything else. You, know, you get too much of that. Uh, I never forget the time I was at this elegant club with a guy in London, yes. And uh, they had this, uh, I believe it was Stilton cheese. Came out, came on a cart, and uh, they wheeled it out. And I'll tell you the actual truth. You know, you, be, you begin to realize why the English was able to, why, why they were able to do what they did. 
for over 400 years. You know, you you can see, you can still feel the the reverber, the slight reverberations of of uh, Richard the Lionhearted, Eric the Red, Hunrath the Bald, Plondock the Scaly, all those great Englishmen of the past. Uh, when you, yeah, they, they they were not all. Believe me, they were not all Lawrence Olivier. They certainly weren't. Great heavy prognathous jaws, blue teeth. Beetle, yes, and they had these little BBs for eyes. And uh, I was uh, sitting in this club with this this gigantic Englishman, you know, the kind that never really says anything clearly. He's got an enormous yellow mustache. It was faintly beaded by tobacco juice. And uh, you don't see that in English movies. a gigantic guy. <laughs> he did this a lot. And they can do that with such fantastic expression. <laughs> Just a, a, a clearing of the throat that sounds a little bit like the thing that a rhino does just before rutting season. And he's about to tromp you into the dirt. And he goes, Stilton cheese from Ragot. Well, he was telling me that the Stilton cheese is good here. At which point, see, I, I learned the language. I was there for a while, to, long enough, that uh, due to my, my superhuman ear for the human voice, and my incredible sense of pitch, which has enabled me to master the Jews' harp and a kazoo, uh, I, I was able to understand what he was saying, which was, the Stilton cheese is excellent in this place. Well, I said, uh, very good, very good. <coughs> and he turned, yes, he did, he turned, and, and there was a waiter who was lurking over by the side of the door there under a, 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 a picture of, of Winston Churchill, who had been a member of this club many centuries before. And Churchill in this picture was grimy with smoke, of pipe smoke and tobacco juice and all the stuff that was around in this club and the and the uh, accumulated uh, the accumulated effluvia of thousands of, of, of long conversations about the Battle of Britain, uh, which had drifted up to the ceiling there. And then, of course, uh, endless uh, vituperations on the rest of the world had uh, caused this picture to look like a toad looking out of a swamp which is what the Churchill looked like in this picture. An excellent member, see. So uh, the man sitting next to me went uh, again like a... <coughs> and the waiter darted back. They understand each other. That's the amazing thing about Englishmen. Of course, you, you find this is also true of other populations in various parts of the world. I, I've often wondered how the hell a Spaniard understands another Spaniard. They speak so un incredibly fast that there's no way. You, know, you can't believe it that they can understand each other. Uh, every third word to every Spanish-speaking guy I ever heard is, uh, is mira, mira, which uh, roughly translates, uh, stay away from the mirror because you'll able to get the truth, and uh, which I suppose, uh, uh, which I suppose uh, says a great deal about the bullfight mystique, which is part of the Spanish mystique. <laughs> and that uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I was sitting there, you want to hear about the Stilton cheese, right? Well, I was sitting there, and I, 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 this is one of the great culinary moments of my life. I'm, I'm sitting there at this table among this, this great, elegant crowd of, of elegant people. This is the kind of club, really, you know. The Englishmen have clubs that go back to, oh, four or five millennia B.C. That's right. They do, right, Reg? Uh, isn't that true? Jerry, in fact, I was there with Reg. Uh, Jerry, uh, his brother, is in there. He's working on a mustache, but it'll take a while. Because, you see, like the playing fields at Eton, 
As you know, the playing fields of Eton were the result of 600 years of tender care and rolling and and uh, snipping. And as we all know, uh, the world was won on the playing fields of Eton. That is, uh, all the walks were beaten on the playing fields of Eton. I'm using an English phrase here, not me. It's not mine. Uh, so, nevertheless, this this produced a fantastic race of people. Uh, due to the fact they were living on a place roughly the size of uh, Lake County, Indiana, it made them very nervous, very tense. Because, after all, England is nothing. Uh, well, the state of Utah could put England in its back pocket and not know that it's even got a lump there. So, uh, you know, there's no problem. That just made the Englishman very nervous, this little island, this blessed island. So, uh, ultimately, Englishmen get very, very tough, very tough. Hard men, grizzled men. They First of all, they began by dyeing their bodies blue, which uh, scared the hell out of everybody that came around them for a long time. In fact, many of them still do, <laughs> certain parts of London. Uh, well, see, civilization has not yet seeped into certain areas of the East End. Uh, well, let's put it this way. The rest of the world's civilization, they've got their own. And uh, they speak in, the, in strange, squeaky monosyllables. And so I'm sitting there in this club. And uh, I have just had a uh, had a fant- yes dear I've just had a fantastic meal, which uh, I I didn't want to ask him what it was, kidney and blood pudding I found out later it was and I want to tell you this, when you've sat down to a hearty meal of kidney and pl- blood pudding, you're ready for a brownie at the chock full of nuts, as as a kind of an escape from this bloodthirsty world. After all, what what do you think Bluebird was? Was Bluebird the Bluebeard rather? Was Bluebeard the was he Swedish? Of course not. Guess what he was? He didn't come from Staten Island. Not at all. Uh, Rumpelstiltskin. You said, what nationality do you think Rumpelstiltskin was? <laughs> That's right. And don't forget Ethelred the Scaly. Very exciting. This is Flying Bird. Right. <laughs> I don't know. This is getting silly. But nevertheless, uh, I might as well finish the story there. I mean, kind of a dull story because it, it makes me sick when I think of it. Uh, a certain story should give you a sense of exhilaration. You know, you get exhilarated, right? When you see the hunchback in Notre Dame or something like that. You get all excited and you love it, you know. They, they, yeah, great things. Exciting stuff. Uh, but this story is a sickening story, and, and as long as uh, the kids are in bed, I'll tell you about this. I'm sitting there with this guy in his club. I've never been in an English club. I mean, the kind of clubs I go to, like the Little Orphan Annie Secret Circle, uh, Boy Scout Troop 41. Uh, those are the organizations that I belong to. Uh, we have meetings once in a while. We sit around and tie knots and stuff. But th- these clubs, I don't know quite what they do. Uh, they sit in front of fire, look mad a lot, and they drink port. Now, I don't know whether you've ever drunk much port. That, that's, that's a special thing that the English can do. And, and don't laugh at it. After all, we drink Yoohoo. They, they, uh, uh, it's an acquired taste. And uh, yeah, uh, there's there's something about it. Can't explain it. Only an Englishman understands port. Uh, yes, nut brown port. They keep referring to it as nut brown, and the aged port. And it's uh, to me. You know what port always tastes like to me. Uh, do you don't mind if I say this to you, Jerry? Uh, do you know what port tastes like to me? Well, it tastes like to me a cough medicine, which we call here in America REM. Have you any of you ever heard of REM? You haven't heard of REM? Oh, I used to drink it on the rocks. It's great. Uh, 
uh, Rem, uh, I, I, I had an aunt, as a matter of fact, who, who got hung on had a call. Now, uh, possibly n- many of you never heard of had a call, but the had a call was known as a tonic. And uh, we had this we had this aunt in my family who was what they call a holy roller. Now, uh, have you ever heard of a holy roller? Oh, I'll tell you. My aunt used to think doilies were obscene. Uh, she she was really tough. And uh, yes, a holy roller. And, and she used to go to church, like oh, every twelve fifteen minutes. And uh, when she would get there, you know, they would do this thing. They would you know they'd get all in froth and yell and roll around the floor and scream and and holler amen and all that stuff. Yes, and she she did more than that. Uh, her favorite her favorite uh, Saturday afternoon thing. You, you know, like most people go to the movies. You know, they go. After all, everybody needs a little rest from their real life, right? This has been uh, said that this is the thing that sets man apart from the animals. That man needs a rest from his regular life. He's uh, he lives a fantasy life. Now, it has not ever been proved that, uh, say, hippos do, but man does. He does. He constantly believes that he is going to fly to Mars, or he's going to flap his arms and take off and go into the solar system, and he's going to do this and everything. You know, he wants to be everything. Man wants to be a fish. Yes, he's dreamed endlessly. He looks at fish in the fish tank. He says, wouldn't it be groovy if I could swim around like a fish? So he invents uh, scuba stuff, and and he he tries it. Never quite comes off, but he, he does it, see. We've never made it like birds do either. I mean, I've never heard of a bird, say, uh, forgetting to put down its landing gear uh, on landing. And yet, the, you know, they say that among twin-engine pilots, and I speak as a pilot, there's only, kind, there's only two kinds of twin-engine pilots. The guys who has landed without their landing gear down and those that will. That's it. There's only two kinds. So I have not yet seen a sparrow do that. So obviously uh, they're, they're, you know, they're a little more with the flying thing than we are. They, they don't have to sit around in a lounge when they're flying and gets, you know, get bombed out of their head so they forget they're 35,000 feet in the air going 700 miles an hour. The bird, he just flies around, looks down, he laughs, digs it. You know, that's his, his medium, right? You notice at the medium, right? Okay, you know about mediums. Sitting there at night with the bugles, and uh, Abraham Lincoln is talking through them and all. Well, I don't know quite what that has to do with birds flying through the air, but that's what they explain to me a medium is. Now, um, are you uh, confusion in there? Everything's set. Okay. All right, you keep interrupting me. Yes, dear. When is the last time I saw a bird with an ADF? Honey, they invented it. As a matter of fact, one of the great mysteries of aviation is how birds do have an ADF. Tell her, Jerry, will you? They do not know how it is that birds can fly 1,250 million miles, apparently against bad weather, unbelievable crosswinds, in completely zero-zero weather, and still find uh, Capistrano, uh, for one. Yeah, they do. A lot of twin-engine planes have failed to do that. They haven't even come within three states of it. Uh, yes, I, I remember one time in, a, in uh, my own, uh, I was on a cross-country. I'm flying away there all by myself, seeing, and, and uh, yeah, I'm buzzing along there. You know, everything's working. I got the Omni going. Everything. I think I got it under, under control, see? Going along there groovy. And all of a sudden, I see the ocean coming up off in the distance. It looked like the ocean. There's a lot of water down there. It stretched for millions of miles as far as I could see. Well, I was flying due west from uh, from Jersey. Couldn't figure out how I was coming to the ocean. Still haven't figured it out. I just uh, what I did just was reverse everything, go back to where I come from, 
told them on the ground the weather was too bad, and I went home and thought it out a bit, you know. Here I am again. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm sitting there with the, with the Englishman. See, I, I, I don't know why I decided to tell you this story. We have a note here. It says, do you know that you can carry on any conversation with anybody with three phrases? Get out your notebook, gang. This will appear on the final. This will appear on the Blue Book exam. Uh, that uh, this is part of our education. This is an educational show. And part of our educational show work is to how to use language. Got to learn how to do that, right? Man communicates by language. So uh, here is a tip which you can carry to good stead. Do you know that you can carry on any conversation with anybody with three conversation, just three phrases, just three? First phrase is, beats me. Write that down. I'm serious. Write that down. Beats me. Second phrase is, that'll be the day. Write that down. That's phrase two. And the last one is, I'll be damned. Try it. Try carrying out a conversation with Aki. Some of, that, of course, he's been doing that with you for years. So it really <laughs> it doesn't matter. However, I'm sitting there in this club, see, and, and this toad-like picture of Winston Churchill is looking down at me. And I'm about to have a lesson in the, who was it who said the, the only trouble with the, the Englishmen and the Americans, the reason they never get along is that they, they, uh, they, uh, they believe they can understand each other because they uh, theoretically share the same language. Who was it who said that? Wasn't that, that sounds like, uh, sounds like Ed Sullivan, I believe, said that. No, 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 I'm sorry. It was Big Wilson who said that, yes. A great classical statement. That you should have heard what George Bernard Shaw said when he heard that one. Really laid it on him. But, uh, yeah, he's a sorry. But, uh, nevertheless, we're sitting in this club, the elegant club, the great big thing there, you know, at this picture. And I'm trying to be, you know, when you're in Rome, what do you, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue, when in Rome, uh, you're supposed to do something, uh, ah, it's on the tip of my tongue. I hate to do this, you know, I get hung up. And I'm going to be thinking about this. As soon as I get off the air, I'll, I'll remember it. When in Rome, do, it's gone. Uh, can't think of it. The, when in Rome? No, no, no. Come on, that's something else. A penny saved is a penny earned. No, that's not the one I'm thinking of. It's something else. When in Rome, you do something. But anyway, I'm sitting there, see. Oh, I know something I did once in Rome got me in trouble too. I worried for months after that. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I'm sitting. <laughs> you're going to think about that one, aren't you? I'm sitting in this club. And uh, with this guy, he's invited me. Now, he's a high echelon, titled gentleman of the BBC. And they are awfully high, and they are awfully titled. And uh, they get, of course, they, they, have, they have really developed the public be damned attitude. Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, radio in so many parts of the BBC is not, not to be listened to. It's to be put on, which is quite different. I remember one morning at... at 5:30 a.m. I woke up in this hotel and they had a they had a radio in there and I uh, it woke me up. The thing just turned on automatically. I, I, it was one of the little English tricks. It turned on automatically and it was a voice that was speaking in a curious accent, which I later learned was a cross between the uh, Lancashire is that correct Lancashire accent and uh, a Welsh accent, which is an almost impossible cross. 
and he was talking about his the walls, the early Roman walls, just outside of the Bernier. I said, what the hell? At five in the morning, he's talking about the ruins that were found out of a small town in some place in one of the upper reaches of Wales, which had unfortunately been covered up by the bones of the miners who had died in the great shale explosion of 1812. Well, I, I listened to this for a while. I figured, well, I'm here in Rome, and I better dig this, see? So I did. I sat there and dug it, and I listened to this, because I was going to meet with this BBC guy later in the afternoon, which I did. He sent his Wolseley up to pick me up. Now, I might point out that the, that the Wolseley is the car that the English really use. That's not the same as the one they sell around the world. Uh, the Wolseley is, in fact, if, if you've ever seen English movies... Uh, you know, you look at the English uh, detective pictures, uh, the English movies when the Scotland Yard men are running around. They run around in Wolseleys. If you ever wondered about that car, correct? They're Wolseleys. And uh, he showed up. I, w- I was really pleased. You know, I was in a Wolseley. And I sat in the front. So you could smell this leather. It was, oh, maybe two, three hundred years old, this Wolseley. Tremendous. It had been polished by centuries of Englishmen. And, uh, yes, like the playing fields at Eton. That's correct. It had a, it had a hood on it, a bonnet, actually. Had a bonnet that was just just like gleaming glass of silver. See, we're moving over towards his club. It was something like the Aquarium Club or the Antiquarian or the the yes, it was an elegant. I'm to tell you the actual truth. So I arrived in the front of the club, and his driver had driven me there, and he was quite impressed because I was being taken to the club. And Americans are not just allowed in these clubs. Not not that easy. And uh, he was very impressed by that. He figured that I was an undercover agent. Actually, I was a, I was an Englishman who was pretending to be an American. And somehow, you know, you could just see. So we got out of the car, and he opened the door, and I walked into the club. And uh, here's my friend sitting before the fireplace with three ex-RAF uh, wing commanders. Uh, everybody in England in these clubs is an ex-RAF wing commander. There were no privates in those those wings that they were in. Uh, there weren't even second lieutenants. They had nothing but wing commanders and group commanders. So, uh, yes, tremendous organization the RAF must have been. So, well, yeah, I walked in there and I was greeted by him. The, the way they greet you is to grasp you firmly by the right hand. Tremendous gnarled fist, which had been used to, of course, uh, keeping the peasants in line for centuries on this age-old estate uh, on the Henley-on-Thames. And uh, I, I, uh, he grasped me by this gnarled fist, and I could see the the great lumps of his, of his, uh, of his wrist, tremendous lumps. You could just see this guy holding a mace. Just a few, few, few weeks before, he had this mace in his hand. Yeah, I've been talking historically. A few weeks before, he had a mace in his hand. He was wearing chain mail, and he had these ice blue eyes and this great bristling mustache. Which you know why they drew these mustaches? You know why? Well, because in the early days of the British Empire, when the age of chivalry was in full swing, during the time... You know, we have an idea that they must have been very elegant around Camelot. If you think that, you don't know anything about the the, the Englishman of that period. That was a rough, tough, fighting, drinking, there's another word, uh, crowd. And they did this all the time, night and day. Now, they did a lot of fighting in those days. And as you know, they wore armor when they fought. Well, are you aware that the that the visor on the helm had a tendency, when you breathed in it, to cause the upper lift to become very chapped? Now, I'm telling you the truth. 
Absolute truth. And so, yes, that's right, because here they are slugging away, hitting each other with these maces and these halberds and all that jazz, beating each other over the head, and the guy is suffering with an unbelievable case of lip rash, which uh, caused great unhappiness among various circles. And so they began to grow these enormous mustaches, which were used to protect them against lip rash. I'm telling you the actual truth. This actually, by the way, came back during the days of World War II, when the fighter pilots developed the same lip rash when they wore their oxygen masks. They'd slap these oxygen masks. The guy's in a hurricane, too, you know, at, at the 26,000 feet, slanting in on a 110, an ME-110, in case you're curious. And here he is. He's lining up the sights, and all of a sudden he's distracted by a fantastic case of lip rash, which just doesn't ever show up in David Niven movies, you know, scratching away at the lip and all that. So they grew gigantic mustaches. The, the RAF mustache was legendary, and it came out of this whole thing with the, with the oxygen mask. It's all, all built on fighting, you notice. The entire English world is built on fighting. If you know anything about Macbeth, oh, Henry V, nothing but fighting all the time. Nothing but fighting. In every, in every play in the, the Shakespeare wrote, nothing but fighting. In, in the second act, oh, of course, he tried to pretend they were all Italians. Forget it. Listen, Romeo was about as Italian friend as, as Lawrence Olivier. That's why, uh, and do you thought, you don't think Hamlet was Danish? <laughs> George, I'll tell you. <laughs> Bonnie Prince Charlie all over again, you know, and so they're, they're, they're fighters, fighters, man. So he grabbed me by the wrist. This is in the English greeting. So he reached out and he had this tweedy coat, tremendous coat. It was uh, three or four generations old. This coat had been handed down since the very earliest Charles Smithington Grote, uh, the very earliest Grote member, uh, had handed this coat down, which was woven by Scottish herders of sheep, hand-woven. And uh, do, do any of you know how they, how they, how they, uh, this, this tweed they made the early days, how they would make this tweed waterproof and how they shrunk it? You better tell her in there, Jerry. Because with the girls and kids up, I can't tell them how they did it. But it involved a very basic human function. And they used to do it. So this tweed coat had this tremendous pungency to it. And he reached out and he grabbed me by the arm. Well, I knew that he wasn't clearing his throat. He was welcoming me. And at that, he grasped me with his left hand. He grabbed my elbow. This is an English tradition. you know. And I'll tell you, he knew exactly where to hit me. Instantly, my left side was paralyzed. This is what they did to their very early enemies. Uh, they, they always got the Danes. They got the Picts. Uh, this is the way they dealt with the early Vikings, the Slavs that tried to make it. How, what, do you think happened to, uh, what do you think happened to Hunrat the Bald? Same thing. Got him in the kidney right after that. See, he was paralyzed. So we sat down at the table for dinner. I don't know why I'm telling you this story. Sickening stories has no point really, except that all of a sudden out came that the the kidney and blood pie. Well, I was, I'm digging into it, say, and I said, "What is this, Sir Withington growth?" And he said, "Kidney and blood pie, excellent, 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 kidney and blood pie." Well, I sat there for a second. I realized I'm in Rome, so I'm digging away at the kidney and blood pie, trying to pretend it was uh, corned beef hash, broadcast corned beef hash, which I'm used to at home. Say, so. Uh, I finished this, and on came the cheese. They wheeled it out, the Stilton cheese. This Stilton cheese 
It was huge. You've seen they're big. You've seen them, right? Huge, all thick. It was must have been four, five, six feet thick. Tremendous cheese, and it had wheels on it. And the cheese man of the club wheeled it out. And he was wearing his cheese man's uniform, which goes back to the very earliest days of Alfred the Second. And he wheels it out, and this tremendous cheese—you could smell it coming. You could smell the cheese coming in from the kitchen. Well, I was—I was wearing a pair of sunglasses in an attempt to to hide my shifting emotions. When that cheese went past me, and by God, my sunglasses clouded over just from the aroma of this cheese. Well, the cheese man cut me off a slab of it and laid it down on this bit of、uh, elegant English china. I looked down at the cheese, and by God, it was moving. I want to tell you this: the Stilton cheese was magnificent. It was, you know, it was just laying there. It was just like, like a piece of ancient peat bog or history. It、had all kinds of things going for it. I can, I could just, I could see Sir Lancelot tearing into a slab of his Stilton cheese. By the way, cut off the same cheese that I was having mine from. A little port, you know, knocked down some stout, and then he went out after a few wogs. So I'm sitting there, see, and I look down, and this thing is moving. It's got little tiny bugs that walk through it. And I can see Sir Charles. He's flicking them out with a little pick. He's treasure, elegant cheese. I sat there and flicked the bugs off to one side, knocked down the cheese, and I realized we friends are part of a great tradition. It goes back, back and back, and back.